Welcome to Conversations with Kim. This podcast is about awakening the human spirit, seeing beyond this moment, and exploring alternative paradigms for how we work, lead, and live. I invite you to sit back, exhale, and enjoy the flow. James comes from a long line of peasant farmers, trail riders, elk hunters, alcoholics, and agricultural salesmen. As a talented artist, he uses a variety of mediums to tell stories that are inspiring, heartbreaking, and gut-wrenchingly funny. Moved by the power of story to shape our values, ethics, and society, Tanner focuses on bringing local stories of misfits and unsung heroes out of the woodwork and into our homes. Tanner is a published author who has directed and produced a recent short film, Chess for Life, and is a talented folk singer who has performed across North America. I first met Tanner in Mrs. Nakama's kindergarten class. As one of my oldest friends, I've enjoyed being on the receiving end of his adventurous stories. Recently, Tanner joined the Autumn Goose team as our chief storyteller, helping organizations visualize their personal mythos and live into their legends. In this podcast, we talk about the importance of the misfit in societal transformation, the role of failure in learning, and how localizing art can be a path towards diversity and global transformation. Tanner's own story reminds us of the importance of authenticity and how in the journey of growth, perseverance and resolve are just as important as skill. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to interview you. We've known each other, I think, since kindergarten, and I've never got a chance to draw you out in this fashion. So thank you for being here. Yeah, you're welcome. I guess we're you're technically one of my oldest friends. Yeah, I was thinking that. It's uh, I mean, we live so far away and our lives have kind of converged and diverged. But yeah, it is crazy to think I've known you longer than I've known most people. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you begin? You know, I know you, obviously, but how would you begin to introduce yourself to an audience that might not be familiar with who Tanner James is? I guess I would say that my name is Tanner James. Uh, That's my artist name, my pen name. Uh, My full name is Tanner James Holthy, my birth name. And I'm on sitting on Treaty 7 land in uh, Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. Perfect. And take me a little bit to the history of Tanner. I think you... I mean, I call you my chief storyteller, but there's so much depth in how you became this person and your journey from, if you look at your first book, high school misfit, as you define yourself, college student, writer, traveler, musician, to making these short indie films. Take me through your journey and kind of who you are as a being, which I mean, I know is a big question, but I'll lob it over to you to take a stab at it. I grew up as a highly sensitive, curious, artistic person, you know, in a really rough Southern Alberta town with kind of endless oil money. You know, there's multiple ways to look at that. Uh, Some people might see that as a Shakespearean tragedy, but (laughs) I think lots of humor comes from having a misplaced character, uh, you know, in literature as far back and storytelling as far back as, as, as anyone can remember, that's, you know, it's a great source of comedy. And because it's behind me, I can look back at it now with a sense of humor and realize it helped form 
who I am today. I think I knew from a young age what I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to tell stories and I wanted to explore, you know, stories through artistic mediums. Um, I was always deeply interested in alternative culture and arts. Um, The mediums I was specifically interested in pursuing was, you know, writing um, kind of independent film and movie making and, and music. Uh, but maybe where my story differs from other people a little bit is that my struggle was, okay, I know what I want to do, but how do I do that? You know, these are difficult things to get in, especially if you're from a small town in Alberta, you know, I would say in the post, the post or the pre-internet days, that wasn't entirely true, but it felt like the internet has changed a lot. So being in a small town doesn't have the same geographical boundaries as it once did. But so, yeah, I had to figure out how to, how to do it. And I, I wanted to, to do that through the path of least resistance. So why storytelling? I, I mean, I, I get that it's something that's drawn you, but I, I want to kind of draw you out as a storyteller because I, I think there's something about the way you perceive, especially in some of your written work, the way you perceive situations, circumstances, um, and this link to, I like that you said highly sensitive, because I think that's a term that's starting to become more popular in our society. But, you know, for you, why storytelling? What is it about the telling of a story that's essential to the expression of who you are? Yeah, I, I think there's multiple reasons. I think one of the more practical reasons why storytelling is because, you know, growing up in a you know small town without a ton of opportunity, um, writing was something that didn't have technical boundaries. So I didn't have to go to film school. I didn't have to, you know, grow up, uh, learn how to use a whole, play a whole bunch of different instruments and, and like, uh, have a whole bunch of technical skills to pursue it. Um, storytelling was, it was free. You could do it with anyone. It could be, you know, small or big as a a group, as long as there's someone there to listen, you can effectively tell a story. And I, I saw that growing up in multiple like faucets. Um, I always joke around and say that I come from, you know, a long line of peasant farmers and trophy elk hunters and use agriculture salesmen and uh, storytellers. And, you know, they were my, my family, my, my dad and my, my uncles and members of my family, they were bullshit artists. They would, that was their currencies. They'd sit around and they would tell stories and that was part of their identity. And, and that, that was how they entertained each other. And I saw that ha- have value in their lives um, and value in their community you know, we also both grew up going to uh, and kind of going to a Catholic school, which, you know, from a biblical standpoint, that's all based around storytelling. So um, we're indoctrinated through, through story. Um, So, you know, whether you like that or not, that forms your identity. So my DNA, it's storytelling is in my DNA. And I think, you know, I think as a society, it's not unique to me. I think everyone is, um, we remember things through story. That's how we're taught. That's how, you know, we don't remember facts and figures as a little kid, but we remember these, you know, these, these romanticized heroes journeys. Yeah. I, I love that. You know, I've never made the link until like right now, you just caught me on that raised in a Catholic paradigm. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so story from Adam and Eve to Noah's Ark. I'm, I'm curious because I, I mean, I'm not quite sure where you'd put yourself now, but as you look back at some of those formative stories, how do you see how that story was told and the impact it's had on your life 
influencing where you are now and how you're making sense of the world? I think I'm as I as I get older, I'm learning that those stories aren't so black and white. Um, even you know, going back to I, I'm I'm endlessly fascinated with theology and with these biblical stories because I think when we're when we're young, we see them as a simple hero's journey, and it's um good versus evil and it's du- it's duality. And I think especially now is the like you said, there's it, it almost feels like we're moving into a new age and a different there's a paradigm shift, and so you know, we're, we're, we're looking at our vocabulary and how we talk about some um, colonialism and, and things like that. And when you go back and, and look at those stories, yeah, they can, they can be brutal at times, but you can also find lines of beauty where it, if you, if you, if you look at, if you put an emphasis on a different line in the story, it might completely change the meaning. I think it reflects, yeah, how I'm viewing my life in, in society right now. It's not so black and white. And, and there's very few things that are good and bad. Um, we, you know, the, right. the, the, it's an entire Bible, you know, everything's about good versus evil. But really, like, I, from my experience through life, nothing could be farther from the truth. Just, it's, it's just almost never, it's, it's almost never that simple. Everything's in shades of gray. <laughs> right. Which I, I mean, I think is an interesting place for us right now in society in that like we are hyper polarized, which I don't think is necessarily the totality. I think most of us are in the middle, but the media likes to portray this, this or that good or bad. And one of the things I loved about your book, your first book, I Am the Lizard King, which was about a uh, fellow we went to high school with, was that you portrayed his, in some way, lack of conformist um, morals. So there was a morality there, but his gauge of good and bad, but it didn't really conform with society. And you really drew him out as this unsung hero who made his own rules, who made his own way. And that got me thinking on kind of your lens. And I want to hear, because it even got me thinking on my lens on, you know, how do we actually navigate, you know, good, bad morality in society right now when it is so polarized? And I want to hear from you, like, if life truly is gray, or a lot of life is gray, I mean, like, um, one of my favorite things in Buddhism is like, the truth is, we don't know. (laughs) Nobody knows, and nobody will ever know, which is freeing. um, But it also brings that question, how do we move forward on such heated, contentious, political issues, uh, such as even COVID or environmentalism, when there's no right or wrong. And so it's a big question, but I'm just going to lob it over the fence to you. How do we make sense of our world if it really is gray? Yeah, that's a big question. I'm going to try and, you know, maybe break it up in a few different chunks here, but uh, (laughs) maybe I need to start off by explaining what I think a misfit is. Um, Yeah, I love that. I, I simply think a misfit is just someone that's operating in at least some capacity outside the traditions and norms of our society. And simply put, you know, for better, or for worse. Uh, I think also, you know, sometimes someone that might be portrayed as the bad guy at, at one point in time. Now we look back through a different lens as someone that was a pioneer or someone that was, you know, um, pivotal, pivotal in a movement. Um, but, you know, at the time they might've been human dirt, that, that's how they might've been perceived. So um, 
because our value system and is always changing and what like our idea of right and wrong as a society and you know things go out of fashion so quickly with exception of some basic human human emotions like love and things like that that does not change you can watch movies from the 1940s and like a love story doesn't really change some of the the like if you watch comedy that's like if you watch an old comedy movie with you know fred astaire it might seem so silly and stupid now because that changes every decade um what we deem appropriate for comedy but yeah so i think that for a misfit you're challenging something up front we may romanticize that in a different era so that's always that's always some fluctuating changing i think why i'm particularly interested in the misfit is i I always have there's usually two reasons for my thinking there's usually like the very practical left hand um and there's a a reason how it's influenced my life and then i have a philosophical woo -woo kind of um hippie outlook on things that i romanticize but the practical reason that i'm interested in, in misfits is because they've changed my life you know a handful of misfits and a handful of movements have changed the course of my life forever uh, it goes back to my upbringing. You know, when I grew up in our, the small town we grew up in Southern Alberta, uh, you, as a young man, it felt like I had three options that I could pursue with my life. I could, you know, be in industrial agriculture. I could be in oil and gas, or if I was lucky, I could be in a white collar profession in high school. When I kind of figured that out or felt that I, I already did not have the grades for a white collar profession. Thank so there, you know, one third of my options were gone. <laughs> And that was a frightening, terrible feeling. You know, I knew I was interested in, you know, in music and, uh, but that felt like, it felt like there was an easier chance to be land on the moon than play in a band because I didn't know anyone that played in the band. It was, you know, the internet wasn't the same as nowadays. I had no roadmap of how would I possibly play in a band or even learn how to play an instrument. It just felt like, it felt like such, such an obscure concept. It felt like I knew NASA existed. So it felt like there was a better chance of, you know, going through that those gatekeepers and landing on the moon than actually playing a band to me at that time. And then I remember seeing this obscure poster one time that looked like it was homemade. And somehow a friend brought me and I followed that. And it was a, a, an all age punk rock show in, in Lethbridge. And some friends brought me up to that. And I, I saw that there was this complete network made where, you know, this, a, a band had, you know, got together with a, some of a promoter in the town and everyone was underage and they rented this, you know, this, this community hall and they sold tickets and they made posters and like, it was this channel. And then there was like, you know, a, a vegan booth of activists sitting there at the corner and like the band, multiple bands played, you know, it was available for everyone that wanted to be part of it. And you could pick a role and you could learn how to fulfill that role the best to the best of your abilities. And it was so amazing to me because it was, I, I just thought, you know, a bunch of kids put this together and they created this network. And then I found out that was a network across Canada and across North America and across the world. And you, you couldn't get famous or it was very difficult to get famous and you, it was very unlikely you get rich, but you know, you could make enough money to, if you want to play in a band, it was welcoming enough that you could, if you were okay, you could sell enough merch that you could pay for gas and it was a way to travel for free. Or if you wanted to like, you know, learn about activism, you could set up a booth and like, uh, you know, promote your cause. If you wanted to be a promoter and on business end of things, you could learn that from a grassroots perspective. So just seeing that blew my mind. It was like, oh, this ki- you can do this and you can build something out of nothing and you can find like-minded people. And that, that just felt like, it, it just felt like anything was possible. So that was directly from a group of misfits who just had a fire under their ass and, and were able to, you know, think about a different way to do things 
than society society had been doing up until that point. There, I like what you're saying. And there's a couple of things that stuck out for me. The one is just seeing what's possible. And, it, and I think that's one of the benefits of living in this time is that the possibilities are endless and we're seeing them. And there's people, um, you tag as the misfits, that really are those trailblazers that expand our consciousness to like, wait, no, there's something else that might be available for me here. So I love that you said that. The other part that really stuck out from your um, lament on this is that there's a few basic human emotions that don't change and you tagged love as one of them. And so when I'm kind of thinking about what we need to navigate through gray, it's kind of like we need the trailblazers and the innovators, if I'm hearing that in your mind, the people that show us what's possible. And then we also need to get in touch with what are the essence of, you know, what makes humans unique and some of them, those characteristics where morality and right wrong might change. Our ability to care for one another seems to be that uh, sustaining momentum through time and space. And maybe I'm projecting my own thoughts on what you're saying, but that's what I'm pulling out of that. <laughs> no, I think that's that's pretty close. Yeah. I want to hear from you because you're starting to talk about the time of your life in the band. And I, I think it's a really cool period of time and that we were friends in this time and I was following a more traditional path. I, I too didn't quite have the marks for the white collar career, but there's this place that used to be called Last Chance College where <laughs> misfits such as myself could prove themselves to get into the other gatekeepers in society. So I, I mean, I know you took that route too. But at some point, our kind of paths diverged. I was more on the career tra trajectory, and you were living this traveling musician life. I'm wondering if you could talk about that period of your life, because in some ways, as an outsider, when I would meet you, there was always this lure of it, this romanticized idea of what it's like to be on the road, telling story, living your life's purpose, and what seemed to be kind of finding your authentic self. So I want to hear from you on that period of your life. Sure. Um, so as I mentioned previously, that I knew from a young age that I was interested in writing um, independent music and, and independent film, and I was a film fan. Uh, pursuing those three things came at different points in my life. One of the reasons that music came in the forefront is because traditionally, uh, you know, rock and roll kind of romanticizes younger people, whereas, you know, as a writer, the world doesn't have a lot of interest in you as a 21 year old or an 18 year old, unless, you know, unless you've like done something crazy and broken a mold. Um, so music was just, it made sense to, to focus on that first and foremost, because the opportunity was there at a young age. And once I saw those, you know, punk rock bands do it themselves, I knew that it was, it was feasible and it was possible and there's ways to do it. Um, during that era, when I was kind of, I, I also went to the uh, Lethbridge College, and, um, and I, thank I, you for rebranding that. It's actually a great yes. college. I do want to <laughs> correct that. Uh, but I, I mean, I thought that's what it was at the time. It was, um, yeah, if you, if you, is exactly how you described it. And um, but it was, it was important for me because I met some people there that allowed me to sit in and play music with them. And music takes you know a few years to for you to develop the skills to actually do anything useful with it. 
And so I was able to kind of, you know, go in a basement and play with people that were better than me that I had no right to play with that were just kind and they recognized my passion and they let me fail and learn with them, which is, you know, one of the kindest things you can ever do for someone mm. is allow them to grow and allow them to fail and, and just be themselves. So that was, I, I can never, you know, explain how much that meant to me. So that was happening kind of underground, you know, out of sight, out of mind for the average person. And then also I was, um, I also want to be a writer and I had read somewhere that if you want to be a writer when you're young, the best thing you can do is collect stories. And so I knew that there was certain milestones in my life that I would hit like everyone else. And I, I would t- write about those one day, but I also knew that obscure stories were one of the you know easiest things that you could collect and talk about. And so I welcomed the weird and I welcomed <laughs> you know the non-traditional just for the sake. Cause I knew even though it might be, it might be not fun or not enjoyable, I would get a story out of it. So I try to just keep that, you know, be like a uh, an antenna and just just be aware and available and say yes to things that I knew might lead me down a interesting dark alley. And so one of the things that that I said yes to when I during that era was, um, you know, if you know anything about Southern Alberta, we're kind of the end of the the Mormon Trail, as I like to call it, that kind of stems <laughs> from Salt Lake City and runs through, you know, um, up into Southern Alberta and to Carson particularly. So there's this organization that is effectively took young Mormon boys and that already had done a mission that knew how to knock on doors and be rejected and gave them working visas and then try to get them to sell uh, security systems for in, in the States. And so a friend and I kind of pretended we were, you know, uh, that was our pedigree growing up and got these working visas. And again, the whole time I was like, is this going to be lucrative? Probably not. Is this going to be a good career move? Probably not. Is this going to be a weird story? I'm like, hell yes, it is. <laughs> um, so this is collecting stories. And so I, I, I did that and we went down to the States and we lasted about two weeks selling security systems, but we had these working visas um, that are difficult to acquire. We acquire for free, a little bit of travel money. Uh, and we, we just moved to a place called Ocean City, Maryland, which we never even knew existed until uh, someone told us about it and ended up living there for the summer. And that's when I started, you know, playing music on the beach and I started busking and I started learning how to entertain in that capacity. And busking is a very different, I, I think most people in North America learn how to play music through church and they learn like playing in a church band they learn like this very style that, that um, colors most of North American music music. Now um, I didn't grow up that way. Um, I didn't grow up learning how to play music in church that wasn't available to me. So yeah, I learned how to busk on a beach and that's trying to get someone's attention for 10 seconds. It's like the only goal is if you can get their attention, they're more likely to throw money in your, in your case. And so it doesn't really matter what happens, it has to be quick, digestible, and fast. And alert, alert. it taught me how to, you know, uh, how to tell jokes and be quick and, and um, work with a, a d- short attention span um, and what songs worked. And it was, it, it was very punk rock because it was very, you had to be loud and you had to be like a little bit obnoxious. And, and that's how, that's kind of taught me the fundamentals of entertainment. Mm. I, hearing a bit of a theme in what you're talking about before on people that let you fail and then jumping into the world of busking and which is like quick failure okay learn fail again learn what is it in you that because the other thing and this is a bit of a digression but one of the things Tanner that has always struck me about your stories is 
you and I came from the same small town. We were indoctrined in the same church. I used to sit across from you. I'd be like, oh, there's Tanner. And we both kind of took these separate paths. Um, we both have what I would think are like somewhat colorful backgrounds. We've lived. I would say we've both lived. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things I have always admired about you is that there never seemed to be the same shame around some of your weird stories. This same like, you know, you have this open mind that has seemed to just allow you to experience something for what it is without going into that right, wrong, and really living into that life is gray. That's something that I've, I've noticed from you. So I'm curious on how at such a young age, because I mean, at 18, 19, 20, you're young, you're impressionable. How are you able to hold such an open mind with that fail fast? It's just an experience. It doesn't mean something fundamental about myself, because that's always been something that I've really appreciated about you. I think, yeah, that back to that misfit culture, I think in my, in my teens, what was valued in our small town and it was, you know, as a, as a male, it was like, could you play hockey where you good at <laughs> hockey? Well, you were valuable. And if you couldn't, you were less valuable. Um, were you good at school? That wasn't even as important as hockey that got you a little bit of value, but like, there wasn't a, a whole lot of, to, to, to feel self-worth through. Mm. Um, and I just thought that was bullshit. And I could, tell from a young age that you know uh, like and I, I look back now I'm like so what if you're good at hot so what if you can push a like a rubber puck around a piece of ice like that doesn't impress me at all <laughs> um you know there, I'm not I'm not downgrading um uh athletics and I think that the triumph of the human spirit is a whole different entity that that I that I, I do romanticize but that that wasn't how I saw you know minor hockey um <laughs> uh, uh elevating someone to like a demigod status so, you know, one of the misfits that I wrote the book about, Big J, um, during our, our teenage years, I saw him and, you know, he was very closed off and guarded about it because he had to be. Um, but one of the things I saw him doing was was he was bettering himself. You know, we, he, we'd go up to the library in Lethbridge and he'd get the stack of books on, you know, he was studying like studying Buddhism and he's studying, um, uh, he was studying all these different forms of religion and, and he was understanding them too. And, you know, as a young kid, and he was studying all these varying degrees of topics that interested him and, uh, you know, no one gave a shit about that. Like he was, uh, you know, that to me, that's, that shows like, that's, that's, that's an outstanding trait of a young person. If I saw someone doing that, I would just, I, I would think they're, I would think they're truly something special if they, if that's what they're interested in. And I saw that no one cared about that. And, you know, he was always kind of deemed as white trash and he can never shake that identity because that's what was you know maybe his his uh his family status and and i just thought that was that was rubbish and so i think that i didn't i didn't i just stopped subscribing to that um that value system at a pretty young age and realized that it was flawed and i saw i saw better methods and better ways to do it and i was just gonna you know prioritize what i valued i am mm. One of the things that you're describing that's sticking for me is this journey to authenticity, being really about questioning everything that's around your world and finding people that you really resonate with. I'm wondering, you are, well, you must be turning 36 because I remember your birthday is in October, about the same age, my birthday's <laughs> coming up. So you're almost, you're on the cusp of 36. You've had this weird, wondrous life. 
um, you've deep dived into some of your passions, probably more than most people, Tanner. How do you feel right now at this point in your life? Um, how authentic do you feel you are able to be in society and able to be yourself? Have you found your authentic self? I think that's the, really the question that I'm looking for after all of this traveling and striving. Yeah, I think I found enough channels and outlets that support what I do. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not famous and I'm not, I'm not independently wealthy from any of it, but I've been able to, you know, keep a roof over my head and I've been rewarded with adventure and with friendships and with um, the luxury of pursuing something, you know, do, like you said, doing a deep dive and make, writing a book takes thousands of hours. And like, I've had the luxury to sit down and, and pursue that and make a little bit of money off it. And, you know, that, that's a wonderful thing unto itself to, you know, ha- to have some sort of reward. I think it's, sh- you shouldn't be doing it for that, but it's just that you do need, like, I think, I think we do need a little bit of validation, whether that's through our peers, through, you know, some, some sort of like financial stability through, um, through yeah, some of these channels and gatekeepers that really, really helps just kind of to make you, f- to give you the confidence to, to, to call yourself that, you know, there's always that point as an, any artist where you, you say, yes, I'm a musician and you're not ashamed to say it in public. Um, and it took a long time before I could say, yes, I'm this or yes, I'm that. And now I just do a lot of things. So I try to brand it all as the storyteller or just for simplicity's sake, because um, mediums aren't that important to me anymore. Like whether I'm playing music on stage or I'm writing a book, like it really doesn't make a difference to me. It's like I'm the the common goal is the same. I'm trying to tell a story and I'm trying to like invoke the human human emotion through our like collective experience and and that's what it's all about to me. Um, so yeah, I feel I feel confident at this age, and I feel like excited too because I think one of the real joys of pursuing arts is that you never retire; you just die. So it's like not something I ever have to like. I think you get more selective as you get older because some of the one of the beauty, beautiful things about being young is that you don't understand how much work something's going to entail, or you know, going across the country in a you know an indie rock band in an old van is you know it's cold and it's brutal and it's dangerous and it's sketchy and it's, it's a wonderful adventure but you know at 36 i romanticize that a little bit less i'm still happy to go play some like shows and go on tour but i want to stay in a hotel if i do it now or <laughs> stay with a friend once in a while um so yeah so, some of those doors uh you're happy I'm, I'm, I'm happy i did some of those things when i was young and i can be a little bit more fussy now but but i also heard recently um a filmmaker talk about how with film particularly a lot of people do their best work when they're uh, in their thirties and forties. And then when they get in the fifties, they can start teaching and sharing. And I like, I love that, that you can use it, your expertise and you can kind of, you know, be a mentor and and share. And, and, and there's that whole future that you have to look forward to. You can teach at any point kind of thing. So yeah, the, the, uh, the future feels bright. Well, Thank you for that. And I, I mean, there's so much in there, but what I'm really resonating with that, what, what you're saying is this finding people. One thing that you said, finding people that see, hear, and understand you in coaching, they say, you know, one of the gifts of coaching is that you're seen, heard, and understood. And I think as much as there's this um, period of exile, feels like exile when you're walking, trying to find your authentic self and find your people. At some point, part of that process is finding other people that are like, no, I, I see you and I appreciate your uniqueness. And the way you described your life um, really has a lot of simplicity around it. Like you said, I'm not famous, 
but I hear so much wealth and abundance in that you're able to create a living, have a house, have a family, doing what you love and being who you are. And from like the coach's door and also from my own journey, I mean, I ultimately, I think that's what most of us are looking for. I, I think we get fooled by false idols, especially what we're taught in society that will bring us this joy and bring us that really isn't aligned with what actually seems to bring us to life. So Mm -hmm. I think your story speaks to it quite well. I I do want you to tell me about, because you've transitioned to film recently, your recent short film, Chess for Life. I want you to talk just a little bit about it. What drew you to this? Yeah, so Chess for Life is a a really cool program that is native to Lethbridge, Alberta. Uh, It is uh, a really simple concept launched by a professor and a judge in which they take at-risk youth with a criminal uh, record and they instead of them doing traditional community service which we know doesn't really work like picking up trash in the park or something like that for one one hour a week they get together and uh, these youth learn how to play chess and the idea is or the the theory was chess is a game of strategy it's a a tactical game of warfare and, and it's thinking about you know one or two or three moves ahead um and by teaching you know this philosophical game to kids would it help them make better decisions moving forward and you know through the university of lethbridge they were able to study they're they're continuing to study it you know it was this it's this growing program it's moving beyond lethbridge and the calgary and edmonton it's moving to the prison system it's moving into you know kindergarten classrooms you know without a criminal component uh so and it, it didn't have a lot of publicity so i i'd heard about that story a few years ago and i just kind of always knew I wanted to be involved in it somehow, some way, whether it was volunteering or, um, or telling the story. And then I saw a program through Tell Story Hive, which is this great program for emerging filmmakers where they, um, you can kind of pitch some ideas for grant money and they have some mentorship behind it. And it's kind of set up for any level of, of filmmaking, whether you're just starting out interested in the idea and want to put together a team, you know, it's not to say you can't get the funding or you're a seasoned vet grizzled vet that wants to, you know, money and do it all yourself. Like that you're, you're applicable no matter what. So the, the theme was local heroes. And I, and I thought and for a documentary, they were offering $20,000 to make a, you know, hyper local documentary. And I thought that just married perfectly with this chess for life concept. Uh, the other thing I kind of have become obsessed with like, over the last several years is regionally specific art. So I think that it's, it's telling like our story that's unique to this part of the world and localizing art I hear Indigenous people talk about they didn't see themselves on TV. Well, even as a like a Southern Alberta Southern Alberta kid, I never saw myself on a TV either. It was like everything we saw on TV was a romanticized version of like California, and that's it. Yeah. And like we saw once in a while, we saw Degrassi, you know, Degrassi High, and that was still Toronto, kind of pretending it was not Toronto. So it's like I really do think that's important to like localize and tell our local stories and and um, and you know see ourselves all of all of us on. Like reflected through the the, the the like collective lens. I I totally agree with you. One of the things I've been noticing lately, which I, I think in some ways my blinders are off, so I'm seeing this more than I used to, is when I'm watching Netflix or even I do a lot of visual PowerPoints for groups and I get all my photos from some free site on the website. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, how is everybody white? 
It's like, and like the stories that we're seeing on television, I'm just like, yeah, like really the vast majority of what we're seeing on TV are a bunch of white middle-class people. And you think about like hordes of human beings that aren't actually seeing their stories. And if I think about what you were saying before about really what opened up for you in your world was having heroes and people that showed you what was possible. I think media and representing um, diversity in media could play such an important portal to people being able to see what's possible for themselves and actually see themselves outside of maybe their current situation. So thanks for naming that. I feel like it's important right now. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. And I think, I think there's a cultural shift happening. Um, You know, for a long time, we were just sold this for years and years and years through this like Hollywood lens, we were sold this narrative that everyone is pretty and no one got old. (laughs) And yeah, like you said, and almost everyone was white. And that's just, you know, that's just not true. Like, it's just a false narrative. We we, we sold this bullshit fairy tale. And um, I think people don't want that anymore. You know, I, I always say, I don't, I don't need any more stories from New York and I don't need any more stories from Paris. I want to hear like, I want to hear about your, you know, your time in that, in winter in Edmonton, you know, I want to hear about like, I want to, I want to hear about real life. And I want to, I want to, I want to see those stories because that helps us empathize with those people too. That's the power of film is that we can quite, you know, quite easily see through someone else's perspective in their life. And if, if we only see this bullshit narrative where no one ages and everyone's pretty um, and everyone's white, then we, you know, we're just failing to use this wonderful tool we have called film. I, I think you're so right in both the power of story and the power of film. I've recently had the, well, really the gift of sitting with people that are quite different than myself and hearing their life story. And you named it as empathy. And it's true. It's like you can't sit across from someone and hear what's real from them and see the look on their face as they describe truth and still be in judgment. I, I Maybe it's that... Um, human element of love that cascades across generations of time. But I, I think there really is something about hearing somebody's story that you have this moment, whereas uh, Pima Chaudron says, it's like, you're like, Oh, you're just like me. Like I, I see you in myself and I care about you. So with that, I have a question on as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, what do you think is the most important emerging story of our time that needs to be told? That's a tough question. And I think, I think I like, I could answer that question for me. Um, but I don't think I could answer that for someone else. Um, I think there's a couple, you know, big picture items that are the, maybe the most topical, important pressing issues of our time, like climate change. And, 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 um, but I think, I think if we go back to localizing film and art, I think that tackles a lot of those problems on its own. You know, by by like by localizing and telling our story here, that will cover climate change as it pertains to this part of the world, and and my perspective on climate change and how it affects my life and the people around me. Um, it'll also you know identify local culture. It will um, it will create diversity um, because you're telling if you're being honest about where you are, you can you can showcase the problems and the and the strengths and the weaknesses of of where you live. So I, I do think that like localizing. Um, media will kind of 
cover a lot of those big pressing issues just just organically. I love that. And I, I mean, I think it humanizes it too, right? Like when we focus on the global issues, it's so hard to feel like there's something I can personally do to change. And if we look at to go back to chess for life, I mean, it's, it could have, it could have been a story told in any city really across North America who uses community service, but it just happened to be Lethbridge and it happened to be people that were taking a problem and seeing something they didn't like about their society into their own hands. And I can't help but feel like if that's the type of inspiring story that actually elicits change. I always say like when the when we change, our world will change. Like if we're waiting for politics or some outer force to come and change our world, we'll, we'll probably be waiting forever. It's really just a mirror of what's going on. And I feel like some of that antidote as you're talking about this really is that localized impact. Yeah. And I think the cool thing about that was um, it's a diverse story um, without making any effort to make it a diverse story. Um, We just told the story of chess for life. And, you know, there's like, there's a component of how it's being taught on the blood reserve to an adult literacy class. And we had one of the instructors talk about that. And, you know, there's a variety of different people that, that are using the program, that are facilitating the program, that are benefiting from the program. And um, they're just people that live around here. Um, it's not that they're Indigenous or they're not. It's just everyone's, you know, um, everyone's been invited to be part of the program. And just by showcasing that, it's diverse without even making an effort at it. And so that kind of, you know, it's not we're not fishing for diversity or anything like that. It's just, it just happened by localizing it. Right, because communities are diverse, regardless mm-hmm. of what we're seeing on TV. Yeah. Love that. Um, I want to, we're getting close to the end, but you are standing on a pretty important threshold in life, right? You are Mm -hmm. about to become a dad in a few days, few weeks. Not quite sure yet uh, exactly (laughs) when your baby will arrive, but I want you to name as you enter this threshold of fatherhood, which is an important transition uh, for adults. How is how you see the world, what matters to you, how you see yourself? And you can answer any aspect or all of it. Um, How is that changing as you prepare to actually enter this threshold? Good question. Um, I think there's a common fear that uh, I'm concerned that pops up every once in a while where people say, like, you know, how could you bring a baby into the world at this time? But I, I don't think you could ever look at a time in the world and think that it was a nice perfect place to bring baby into. So I just think that that doesn't hold any water as a, you know, as a notion we're accepting the, you know, we're accepting the challenges and bringing a child into this world. And I think it's, I've, I've thought a lot about my role as a parent and what I'm, what I'd like to do. And I'm, I'm here to shepherd, you know, I'm here to shepherd this little vessel <laughs> um, the best I can and not, you know, not step on her toes and not get in her way um, and not burden her with, you know, my interests and my, philosophies and my beliefs and not to indoctrinate her either. It's just to, um, just to, just to gently shepherd. And, um, you know, when they need to be a parent or if I need to be a friend or I need to back off, I'm going to try to be aware of that. Mm, Beautifully said, Tanner. Well, thank you for your time today. Are there any closing words that you feel need to be said before we, uh, say goodbye? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to pursue a lot of the my, my interests from a young age, and I hope that um, 
out that everyone else feels that they, you know, that they're, they're worthy and they're skilled enough and there's, and, and that the boundaries are, you know, can always be overcome and might just be in your head and, you know, you can take a chance at something and, um, and not be afraid to call yourself that once you arrive at it, you know, if you're, if you're a filmmaker, just call yourself a filmmaker and, and to, don't worry about how other people will perceive that, you know, it's all, half of it is just saying you're going to do it and then, and then calling yourself it. And then you find a way to live up to it. Very, very inspiring Tanner. Like I'm leaving this feeling inspired. And I think about, you know, even entrepreneurship for the first year of starting my business, I was so scared to call myself that. And there's, there's so much in your words, the theme again and again about embracing, you know, embracing failure, embracing that you don't know, you're not supposed to know. And so thank you for sharing your story. And thanks for being my friend all these years. 